Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I want to invite you to grab a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. Before we get rolling, a couple quick things. Pastor Nate asked me to mention, uh, number one, we have 24 hours of prayer this week as a church family across all campuses. We like to gather once a month to cover one whole day, 24 hours in prayer. It's on July 7th this week. And so I want to encourage you to sign up yourself, sign up your family, sign up your small group. Let's cover this church, this community, as Pastor Nate just said, this nation in prayer. Uh, Number two, second thing, real quick, we have a production training meeting a week from today on the 10th, next Sunday at noon. And so if you are on the production team or you'd like to be on the production team, uh, we'd love to invite you to attend this training here at the Gloucester campus. Uh, You can talk to Pastor Steve for more info. but hey, I just want to say it's, it's a privilege, really, really good to be here this morning with you all. I want to thank Pastor Nate for the opportunity to come and share. Uh, I've been at Coastal for a little less than a year now. Um, I serve, as he mentioned, as the family pastor at our Yorktown campus. Um, and we've been exceedingly blessed by this church body. And it seems like every week I hear more and more about what God is doing here at Gloucester. Um, so it's really good to have gotten a chance to get to know Pastor Nate and Pastor Steve and the team here. God's moving in this congregation which is really, really exciting. And I'm excited to, to be a part of that today as we get to look at the word together. Um, I've got my whole family with me today. My wife, Amy's right over there. We're high school sweethearts. She played a big part in leading me to the Lord when I was 17. Uh, my two kids are in the back, uh, Piper and Calvin. So obviously I'm an Armenian. Um, you know, I share that sometimes just to kind of like put it out there and test to see uh, how we're going to do. And that was good. I think we're going to have fun this morning. Um, yeah. And honestly, Piper probably is the one who's most excited to be here today because we were talking yesterday. She hears the word Gloucester and she thinks short lane. Um, and so, so I think there's a real chance that we end up uh, maybe stopping for some ice cream after our gathering today. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited for our time on the word. I think, uh, I think we have a good word today. Um, as you know, we're in, like I said, James 3, continuing this series through James. Uh, it's called Authentic. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. It seems like every message we've looked at in this series has had some kind of theme of authenticity or James preaching against double-mindedness. And we'll see a continuation of that today. It's not new. It's more of the same, actually. It's more of the same that we need. James is exhorting authentic Christian living. James has been encouraging authenticity and warning against double-mindedness all throughout this letter. And so let's just review really, really quickly. Chapter one, Christians are exhorted not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. So we'll see this in a minute, but what we say or listening to God's word, that should impact our lives. We don't just wanna hear it, we wanna do it. In chapter two, James offers a warning against partiality and then argues that faith without works is dead. Or in, in other words, for us to, claim and profess Christ while living like the world would be double-mindedness. It'd be the height of hypocrisy. And then just last week in the first half of chapter three, we see again this picture of James encouraging believers to live authentically, this time through the lens of their speech. As Pastor Nate shared with us last week, we ought to be a people who bless the name of the Lord and not curse those made in his image in the next breath. We must gain control of our tongues. And this brings us to our passage today, chapter three, verses 13 through 18. James continues this idea of authenticity, warning against double-mindedness, and he does it while unpacking the idea of wisdom, of biblical wisdom. So here's the plan this morning. I've titled our message, Wisdom of the World 
and wisdom of the word. And my hope is to keep our time really, really simple. We're gonna read the text together in a minute. We'll work verse by verse through the passage. We'll look at the differences in origin and practice between the wisdom of the world and wisdom of the word. And then we'll close with two ways that we as a church family can grow in godly wisdom. So let's dive in. Verses 13 through 18, this is the word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and the unspiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray really simply, Psalm 119, verse 18, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Origins matter. Where something comes from matters. Think about it. If you're in a store and you have a choice to buy something that is American-made or something that's foreign-imported, you're probably going to buy the American-made product. Where it comes from matters. If you're in Target and you need a throw blanket for your couch, you could buy a $20 blanket from Target or you could get a hand-knitted blanket from your grandmother. The origin matters. One has more value than the other. If you're in the woods, you're thirsty, and you come across two water sources, and one of the water sources is a stagnant pond with algae and kind of greenish-brownish, and the other water source is a fresh-flowing stream, then odds are you're drinking from the stream, the origin of where the water comes from. Think about advice. Where advice comes from matters. You're more willing to take advice from a trusted friend than you are a total stranger. Even parenting advice, which is a dad of young kids, something I get all the time. I'm more willing to take parenting advice from someone whose kids are, well, together, as opposed to someone whose kids are all over the place. Financial advice, the same idea, right? You're not taking financial advice from someone who declares bankruptcy every other year. You're taking financial advice from someone who's doing well. Origins matter. Where something comes from matters. And we're going to see in this text in James that there are two different kinds of wisdom with two very different origins, and that these origins matter. The first kind of wisdom we'll see, number one, is wisdom of the world. Look at verse 15. Wisdom of the world is described as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And the second kind of wisdom, we'll call this wisdom of the word from a different origin, wisdom that comes from above, verse 17, full of mercy and good fruits. And we'll see this distinction in origin as we walk through our text. Let's look first at how James opens in verse 13. He asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? James is asking a rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you. And so wise here describes someone with moral insight and skill in the practical issues of life. 
understanding refers to someone with intellectual perception, maybe scientific acumen. So there's both moral, practical knowledge and discernment here. And James is basically asking who claims to be mature? He's writing to a Jewish culture and through the context of this letter, we can see that he's asking who claims to be spiritually mature? We see in this culture, this first century Jewish culture, both wisdom and understanding, so moral discernment and practical knowledge had enormous value. It was pretty much accepted that if you were wise, if you had a lot of knowledge, then that automatically meant that you were spiritually mature. And we know this isn't always the case, but I think sometimes without realizing it, we make the same assumption in American culture too, that if someone knows a lot about something or they can talk a lot about something, it must mean that he or she is really good at that thing. I saw a sign on a dugout at a minor league baseball game once. It said this, we've been trying to add a player to our team who never makes any errors, always knows what the opposing team is planning, never strikes out, hits for power and average, and can play and coach equally well. But we can't convince him to put down the Coke, come down from the stands and join us. <laughs> like, that's the idea. We think that if we know a lot about something, that we're automatically good at it. Let me tell you, I'm from the DC area and I know a ton about my favorite sports teams, all DC sports teams. And I could talk about them for hours, but no one's ever gonna ask me to suit up and play shortstop for the Nationals. There's a disconnect. Wisdom and knowledge by themselves don't always equal spiritual maturity. And that's exactly what James is getting at here. Look at the second half of verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so does anyone think he's wise? Like, let him prove it by how he lives. Like, in many ways, this is the original show and tell. James is honing in on this idea that if you are wise, if you have understanding, then your life should demonstrate it by good conduct. There's authenticity in that. Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 4, 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. So watch how you live and what you believe closely because the two should match. They're not meant to be separated. What we say we believe and how we act should go together. And if it doesn't, if there's a disconnect, we know that there's a problem. Think about it this way. If I talked so much about how I love my wife and how I cherished her and pursued her, but I spent all my time at the office or all my time on the golf course, we would know I don't really love her because what I say and how I act are two different things. So in the same way, the wise and understanding believer is one whose life is characterized by good conduct and works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom itself is working itself out by good conduct and good works. But then we see in this text, the first kind of wisdom, worldly wisdom, wisdom of the world, wisdom with a different origin, comes from the world. We see it in verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So right off the bat, we see that this worldly wisdom brings about strife and jealousy, self-glorifying ambition. Some of the language used here in verse 14 in the original language was actually used to describe politicians as they were out canvassing for votes. Like it was a look at me, I'm better than him, or look at me, I'm better than her. This bitter jealousy that we see in the ESV is a heart posture that rejoices when rivals fall. 
both inside the church and outside the church. It's a heart posture that celebrates the failures of others simply because it can't stand when someone else is getting credit or recognition. This worldly wisdom is a wisdom that's all about self. And this type of boasting, this self-promoting, look at me, I'm funnier or smarter or more clever. This type of boasting is the opposite of the meekness of wisdom described in verse 13. Instead of meekness and humility in godly wisdom, we see pride and self-exaltation in worldly wisdom. The contrast in origin is clear. And if you think about it, this is both the beginning and the essence of sin. Like, go back to the garden in Genesis chapter three. What was at the root and the heart of the first sin? It was pride. Like exalting self over exalting God. Submitting, in a way, to self over submitting to God. Worshiping self over worshiping God. And this kind of self-exaltation type worship is at the heart of our culture today. Like, think about it in politics. It's all about, look at me, I'm better, I'm better, look at me. It's at the heart of a lot of corporate work culture. Like, there's a culture that says, like, I need to do anything I can to get ahead, to get that promotion, to advertise my skills, to show and demonstrate my value. And hear me, like working hard isn't bad, but when the end goal of hard work is self-exaltation, then we're living in the wisdom of the world. And brothers and sisters, it's even possible for this self-glorifying worldly wisdom to infiltrate the church. Like that's who James is writing to in chapter three. Consider how many people are serving behind the scenes at Coastal across all campuses on a Sunday morning to make our worship gatherings happen. We have parking teams people in the back right now who are holding my kids, your kids, greeters and ushers, people in the production booth, helping microphones work. If we're not careful, when we serve, it's easy to adopt this selfish ambition that this verse talks about when we serve. To think like, man, I haven't been thanked in a while. Or this or that person gets more recognition than I do. People seem to be more aware that they're helping out. Or even I don't feel appreciated in how I'm serving. And before we know it, an act that's supposed to be serving others is actually revealed to be serving ourselves. And keep in mind, James is writing to believers. This applies to us. And we must guard ourselves against this verse 14 type wisdom of the world. Why? Because there is an enemy out there, church, who wants worldly wisdom to define our congregations. This is exactly what we see in verse 15. This worldly wisdom in 15 is described as being earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Three descriptors. And we know that as Christians, we have three primary enemies that wage war against our souls. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In verse 15, I think intentionally, covers all three. Worldly wisdom is earthly. It's from the world, defined by the ways of the world. It's unspiritual. Some translations of unspiritual actually say sensual which appeals to the sinful desires of our flesh and our hearts. And finally, it's demonic, that of the devil himself. So it only makes sense, the product, the end result, the harvest of this worldly wisdom is disorder. Look at verse 16, you'll see where it leads, disorder and every vile practice. So like drinking from a stagnant pond, the wisdom that originates in the world, wisdom that's cloaked in selfish ambition, The vain conceit will lead to disunity in our churches, dysfunction in our families, 
and even disaster in our communities. And so we have to ask ourselves, are our lives characterized by wisdom of the world? Like from where's our wisdom coming? Like when we're at our jobs on Tuesday, hopefully many of us have the day off tomorrow, are we working to please people or are we working to please God? When we serve others, either at church or away from the four walls of this building, do we really want what's best for the people that we're serving? Do we really care for them or do we have ulterior motives looking to be recognized in some way for our service? When we see others succeed, we see other people recognized. Are we quick to rejoice with them, to celebrate them? Or do we harbor jealousy in our hearts because something in us can't stand that we aren't the ones being celebrated? This worldly wisdom is all about self. It exalts self, serves self, and worships self. It's false to the truth, double-minded and hypocritical, saying one thing but doing another. I'll be vulnerable this morning. Like I feel, even as a pastor, that tug towards worldly wisdom in my heart pretty much every day. Like I ask those questions, right? And I'm sure for many of you, you're going, yeah, I, I do that sometimes. I do that all the time. Like I wanna wear a mask, cover myself. And I, I wanna honor God and have pure motives, but I feel a struggle in my soul to default to this type of wisdom, to hide selfish ambition, to hide bitter jealousy. I mean, the word hypocrite in the Greek actually referred to actors in a play that would wear different masks as the play went on. And I think we all do this. Like we all want to present ourselves well. We want to say the right things, we want to honor God, but in our hearts, there's this insatiable desire to put ourselves first. Like every one of us has that. We want to put ourselves first, seek after our own glory. And as we do that, what we're doing is following in the wisdom of the world. But thankfully, James gives us a better way, a wisdom with a different origin, a wisdom from above. So we'll call this wisdom of the word. Look with me at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So man, after talking about worldly wisdom, like these words are so good. I wanna walk through just real quick these descriptors together. So wisdom of the word is described as pure. This word pure carries an idea of holiness. So God is pure and holy. Therefore, the wisdom of God, the wisdom that comes from God is also pure and holy. The wisdom of the world leads to sin. The wisdom of the word leads to purity and righteousness. Wisdom of the word is also described as peaceable. God's wisdom is the wisdom that promotes peace. We saw it in verse 16, the wisdom of the world encourages strife and disorder, a culture where people are constantly seeking their own glory, one-upping each other. The wisdom of the word promotes peace, where people rightly recognize that the one who deserves credit and glory is God, not us. It's described as gentle, open to reason, Someone who's gentle and open to reason is someone who is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Full of mercy and good fruits. To be full of something actually meant to be controlled by something. And so imagine someone who's controlled by mercy, leaving in their wake good fruits. And finally, impartial and sincere. Hone in on this word sincere because I think it rightly encapsulates everything we're talking about so far. Someone who is wise not only says good things, but 
does good things. They mean what they say. They live authentically. It's the opposite of boasting and being false to the truth and hypocritical. Guys, the, the contrast in these two types of wisdom could not be more clear. Like worldly wisdom worships and exalts self. Wisdom from above, wisdom of the word, worships and exalts God. The wisdom of the world leads to disorder, every vile practice, verse 16, and the wisdom of the word leads to verse 18, a harvest of righteousness. Now, I trust that we want to be a people characterized by wisdom of the word. So that's as far as we're going to go in our text today. I want to give us two practical points of application. Because it's easy to walk through and see this contrast in origin and see, okay, there's a clear difference. Wisdom of the world and wisdom of the word. Obviously, we as a church family want to grow in wisdom of the word. We want to be wise. So I had a pastor once who would say, so what? That's what I'll do. We look at this text, we say, so what? How do we grow in this wisdom of the word? I'm gonna give us two reasons, two ways we can grow in this wisdom of the word. The first way we can grow in wisdom of the word, number one, we can ask for it in faith. Ask for it in faith. Proverbs chapter two, verses three through six, Bible says this, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we're gonna deal with the relationship between fearing God and gaining wisdom in a minute. But first I want us to see something critical. God is both the source and giver of all wisdom. Verse six, the Lord gives wisdom. God gives wisdom, and from his mouth, from his hand, come knowledge and understanding. And so here's what we have to understand. The wisdom of the word is a gift, one that only God supplies, wisdom that is gentle and full of mercy, that bears much fruit, peaceable. That kind of wisdom only comes from God. It's a good gift. And James says it himself in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. Wisdom qualifies. It's a good gift. And so if we want this wisdom of the word, the first thing we have to do is ask for it from the one who gives it with the full understanding that if we're able to grow in our wisdom of the word, it's only because of God's grace. Let me unpack this for a second because I think there's a broader application here. The, the Bible is really clear. God is the giver and the provider of wisdom. And we as believers can ask for it. And as we'll see in a second, when we ask in faith, he answers and provides. But I want us to see something else. Not only is wisdom a gift from God, but even the desire to grow in wisdom is a gift from God. Like think about it, left to our own devices, in our own sin, there isn't a person in this room that would naturally desire to grow in godly wisdom. Left by ourselves, there's not a person in this room that would want to chase after or pursue God, who would want to grow in purity or righteousness or Christ-likeness. Romans 3.10, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. That is our default like factory setting. We don't seek after God by ourselves. And in fact, if it were totally up to us, all of our lives would be completely characterized by the wisdom of the world. Wisdom that is self-promoting and jealous because that's simply natural, common wisdom. But by his grace, 
in his good purposes, God has brought about in us as believers a desire, not just wisdom, but a desire for his design and his wisdom, which is evidence of the Holy Spirit doing his sanctifying work in us. The Holy Spirit in us, making us more and more and more like Jesus. So let me make this real practical. If you're sitting here and you've ever rejoiced in corporate worship, Pastor Steve and the team have been singing, and the words that we're singing are used by God to stir your hearts and to bring up an affection in your hearts from God, that's a supernatural thing. Like God is doing that as we worship. So if you've ever rejoiced in worship, it's because God has put that rejoicing in you. If you've ever hungered after his word, like sitting here listening to Pastor Nate week in and week out, and you come on Sunday morning with your Bible open, eager to learn, to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. Or maybe it's a Monday morning and you wake up at 6 a.m. simply so you can be alone with God. If you have that desire to read and devour the word, that desire is a supernatural desire. Like God put that in you. Man, if you've ever hated your own sin, and loved and desired and pursued after righteousness. Like you didn't do that yourself. We can't manufacture in our own hearts a hatred for sin. If we've ever hated our own sin, God has done that. He's made holiness look more attractive to you than wickedness. We praise him for it. And if you're sitting here and you've ever longed for Christian community, like you're in a small group and you love your small group, Meeting and breaking bread together or worshiping together as a church family on Sunday morning is life-giving. You can't wait to get here because it means you get to be around other Christians. That desire for community is a gift from God. And if you've ever desired godly wisdom, it's because God has put that desire in your heart. I'm gonna go one step further. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not yet a Christian or you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you've been here, and you've heard Pastor Nate preach the word week in and week out, or you have a, a neighbor or a friend that keeps talking to you about Jesus. And for whatever reason, you can't shake the fact that there's something about Christianity that's tugging at your heart, it's pulling at your heart, that's stirring up your affections. You think there's something about this gospel, the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he rose again. If there's something about this gospel that you can't shake, or there's something about Christian community that you find attractive, or there's something about God that is intriguing to you, but you're not yet a Christian to know this, God is bringing that about in your heart too. He can do it. He did it for me. He did it for so many of us in here. So that should lead us, church, to praise him because he is good not only provides for us good things, but provides for us good desires. And when we come to him, in faith and we ask him, he answers. James 1, five through six, we covered this a few weeks ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. When we ask God for wisdom in faith, he gives it to us without reproach. Let me give us a refresher on this idea of without reproach because that can be potentially confusing for a second. When God gives us wisdom without reproach, he gives us wisdom generously, joyfully, and without finding fault in us. And I hope that this is freeing for many of you. God knows that in order to live in the wisdom of the word, we'll need to ask him for it. We've seen God is the giver 
of all wisdom, Proverbs chapter two. So when we do ask God for wisdom, when we do step one, we're not met with God saying, well, why haven't you asked for it sooner? Or I haven't heard from you in a while. No, when we do or when we ask what God has encouraged us to ask in his word, he joyfully answers that prayer without reproach because he loves to hear from us. Think about it this way. Does anyone have a friend uh, or family member who lives out of state, like out of Virginia? Show of hands. Who's got a, a yeah, friend or family member who lives out of Virginia? Okay, probably many of us. So I went to Christopher Newport University in Newport News, and I lived with the same like three or four guys for the majority of my time at CNU. And they were my best friends, brothers in Christ. Um, they were up next to me at my wedding. Uh, I love them, still do love them. Um, but something happened. We graduated and went from talking every day, pretty much every day, all day, to maybe doing like weekly or bi-monthly phone calls. And if you've ever had a friend or family member out of state, you know, like it takes work to pursue a relationship when that person isn't presently with you all the time. So we graduated, some of us got married, we got jobs, babies started coming. And what would happen is we'd go from talking every week to talking every month. We'd go from talking every month to maybe once a quarter. And it's gotten to the point six years later now where, man, if I hear from one or two of these guys once a year, I think it's a good thing. You don't hear from them a lot. But out of the four of them, there are a couple who I know if it's been like six months since I've called them or talked to them, when I call them, it's gonna be great. We'll build that friendship. But the first thing I'll hear is something along the lines of, man, it's been a while since you called. Or, dude, I can't believe you actually wanted to reach out. Something, something initial of like a, oh, I wanna pursue this relationship. I want this friendship with that person to grow, but I know I'm gonna be met with some type of, why didn't you do this earlier? That is the opposite of without reproach. Like when we see the Bible talk about how God answers our prayers, gives us wisdom without reproach, we see in his word that God delights in us. God loves us. Yes, we know that. God also likes us. That matters. Like if you're, if you're a child of God, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then the truth of Zephaniah 3.17 applies to your life. God right now is rejoicing over you with singing. Psalms tell us that he rescues us because he delights in us. And we know that God joyfully loves with great joy to do what he's promised he'll do in his word. And he's promised us that when we ask for wisdom in full faith, he will answer so the first way we can grow in our wisdom of the word is to ask for it. Really simple, to ask for it in faith. Number two, second of two, the second way we can grow in our wisdom of the word is to fear the Lord, to fear the Lord. Let's go back to Proverbs 2. We'll see this very quickly, a connection between wisdom and fear of the Lord. If you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. We just read this together. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the what? Fear of the Lord. Understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. What's the author saying here? He's saying that if we search and seek out for insight, and understanding and wisdom will understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So this is a connection that we see all over the Bible. And what I wanna do now is I'm just gonna read four or five scriptures, just four or five verses that say the same thing because I want you to see this is not just one or two verses. 
I'm gonna read them and I'll let the word speak for itself. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalms 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Job 28, 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The turn away from evil is understanding. And so church, if our text, our passage this morning in James 3 gives us a description of what the wisdom of the word looks like, then these verses that we just read tell us what the wisdom of the word is. It's fear of the Lord. So if we wanna grow in wisdom, which all of us do, we ask God for wisdom and then we fear God in wisdom. A true and proper fear of the Lord provides the foundation of wisdom of the word. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, put it like this. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and they that lack the beginning have neither the middle nor the end. And so if we wanna have any hope at growing in godly wisdom, we need to first have a right and healthy fear of the Lord. Now this begs the question, church, like, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Like, what does it actually practically mean to fear God? Some have described this fear of the Lord as awe or reverence. And I think there's elements of truth in both of those, but I think the words fall short because the Bible paints a picture of a God who is so incredibly holy, and so terrifying that every time in the scripture someone caught a glimpse of him, they trembled and fell with fear. In Revelation chapter one, John gets a vision of the glorified Jesus. And verse 17 tells us that he fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus was that terrifying. In Isaiah chapter six, Pastor Steve was just praying this over us. The prophet Isaiah gets this picture of the throne room of God and he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. In Exodus 19, as the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, about to receive the 10 commandments, there are firestorms and hail and thunder. And verse 16 tells us that the people trembled. The people trembled. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Like, listen, we're told to fear God over 300 times in the Bible. And it's because there's no one like him. He's at all times, all powerful, all knowing and perfectly just. And when we look at him in his splendor, his holiness, his perfection and his majesty, and then when we consider ourselves, our reaction is to fear because this glorifying or this glorious and terrifying God is a God who hates sin, who cannot tolerate sin, who despises wickedness. And all of us, like every single person in this room has looked at this fearsome God and deliberately sinned in his sight. And the Bible's clear, when we sin in the sight of God, we earn for ourselves eternal separation from God. And brothers and sisters, like that is a terrifying thought. Imagine being on a mountain, say Mount Everest, thousands and thousands of feet above sea level, and you're all by yourself on this mountain, totally alone. 
And in the distance, you start to see storm clouds gathering at eye level, miles and miles away. But the storm starts to move towards you. And as the storm approaches, it grows more and more intense. Like you feel it in the ground beneath your feet. The mountain starts to shake. You hear the wind howling and you know when that storm hits the mountain, it will send you flying to destruction. It's powerful and mighty. And in that moment, you're terrified. Like all you can think about is finding a hole or crack in the cliffs to hide in, to take refuge in. That storm is the wrath of God hurtling towards a sinful people. And his wrath is good. It is justified, it's perfect, and it's holy. And when we're alone on that mountain, all we can do is think about finding a place to hide from it. And then all of a sudden, like a gift, you find a hole or a crack in the rocks and you slip into it for refuge. You find safety. And as soon as you slip into that hole in the mountain, the storm breaks over the mountain and you go from being deathly afraid to in awe because you are now surrounded by the majesty and the might of God, but you're safe from it. That's what the fear of the Lord does. That's what our fearsome God has done for us. All alone on the mountain, totally doomed, heading towards destruction, God has provided for each and every one of us a refuge in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like he's provided Jesus fully God and fully man who came down to earth as God's son to live a perfect life, to die a death on a cross for our sake, bearing the weight and the punishment of sin on his body on the cross and then rising back from the grave three days later as a refuge. And if we were to repent of our sin, to turn from it and to trust in Jesus, we can find safety. And then our fear of a terrifying, holy God who judges us with absolute perfection goes from being a fear of punishment to a life-giving fear of reverence where we're free to serve him, live for him and obey him. Because that's ultimately what fear of the Lord leads to. Michael Reeves put it this way, true fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all of his grace and glory. So we fear God, and then that fear leads us to respond. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. What do we do when we fear him? We keep his commandments. We obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. When we fear God, we walk after him. When we fear him, we keep his commandments. When we fear him, we obey his voice by seeing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that the natural overflow of fearing the Lord is obeying the Lord. So we ask in faith, and we fear the Lord. If we want to grow in godly wisdom, wisdom, James 3, wisdom of the word in our churches, we do two things. We ask in faith and we fear God. I'm gonna invite the band back up, Pastor Steve and his team. We're gonna close in worship in a second. But as we do that, I just want to address something. If this sounds like really, really simple to you, that's because it's supposed to be. Like this is a model for not only growth in wisdom, but growth in sanctification, the process of becoming more and more holy that we see all over the scriptures. We ask God to bless and then we move. We ask and then we act. We see this in Nehemiah chapter four. Nehemiah four, Nehemiah and his team in Israel are rebuilding the wall after the exile. And there's people who are threatening the rebuilding project, threatening to kill Nehemiah and his team. And Nehemiah in verse nine, chapter four, prays and then sets a guard. 
He doesn't just pray and then do nothing, expecting God to just miraculously answer all of his prayers. He prays and then he sets a guard. He prays and he acts. The same way, he doesn't set a guard and not pray. Think about Psalm 127.1. If God doesn't build a house, the house isn't getting built. We see this model all over the word. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's something we have to do. We act out the miracle, as John Piper says. But then in verse 13, we know that God is the one who works in us to complete the miracle. We'll close with one more. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. I think it encapsulates everything we've been talking about. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's Paul doing in verse 9? He's asking. And what's the next step after asking? Verse 10, so as to walk. Ask and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing of the knowledge of God. When we do this, when we ask and we act, our churches, our families, our communities grow in wisdom of the word. So are you asking? Are we asking? Not just plodding along, hoping that we'll grow if we spend time with the right people. Are we actually asking God to help us grow in godly wisdom? Remember, God loves to do what he promised he'll do. And are we fearing the Lord? Do we have a healthy fear of God? And a healthy reverence and appreciation of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And if you're here and you're not a believer, let me be real with you. You're on that mountain and you haven't found the refuge yet. So I want to invite the prayer team up and be right here and they'd love to pray with you, to talk with you. If you don't yet know Christ, pray with this team. If you don't yet know Christ, come talk to Pastor Nate, come talk to myself. We'd love to help you in that decision. If you're looking for ways to grow in your fear of the Lord, think about it this way. How are you holding back from him in your life? What are you holding back from him? Do you fear him completely? Do you obey him completely? We wanna grow. James 3, 18, we wanna see a harvest of righteousness at Coastal Gloucester, at Coastal Church, in our community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the clear picture that it gives us of two types of wisdom, of a worldly wisdom and a word-based wisdom. God, we collectively wanna grow as a church in wisdom of the word. And we know that James 1 tells us when we ask in faith, you will answer. And so God, we collectively, corporately come before you asking in faith. Would you help us to grow in wisdom? Would you help us to grow in wisdom so that a harvest of righteousness might result so that more and more people in Gloucester and beyond would hear about the good news of Jesus Christ? We wanna see more people come to know Jesus. And God, I pray that you would give us a fear of the Lord. Help me in my own heart to fear you, God. Help us as a church family to fear you, to hold nothing back from you, to lay it all down and say, God, you own everything in my life. Fear leads to obedience. Help us, help me to obey you in everything in our lives. We love you. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Your wrath is good and your mercy is sweet. And so I pray, God, that as we go out singing over these next few minutes, to sing about your holiness, we would sing with a full-hearted appreciation of your love and your kindness and your goodness towards us in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand and sing together.